Coming up on Tech News Weekly, I have a great show planned for you. First, Emily Drybelbus of PC Mag stops by to talk about the AI boyfriends that bored her to death. It's a really fascinating conversation about the AI dating scene and how it's just not there, but maybe almost an exact replica of what the dating scene is actually like. Then my first story of the week, it's all about that robots.txt file that lives on many a website online. Afterwards, my second interview features Victoria Song of The Verge, who stops by to compare Meta's AR and VR offerings and including those Ray-Ban smart glasses, to what the Apple Vision Pro provides. Fascinating comparisons that uh, I think draw some interesting conclusions before we round things out with a conversation (laughs) about the largest text-to-speech AI model that comes from Amazon and what the future might hold. All of that coming up on Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 324, recorded Thursday, February 15th, 2024. Seeking love with AI. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Wix. Web agencies, you're going to like this one. Let me tell you about Wix Studio, the platform that gives agencies total creative freedom to deliver complex client sites while still smashing deadlines. How? Well, first, let's talk about the advanced design capabilities. With Wix Studio, you can build unique layouts with a revolutionary grid experience and watch as elements scale proportionally by default. No-code animations add sparks of delight, while custom CSS gives total design control. But it doesn't stop there. You can bring ambitious client projects to life in any industry with a fully integrated suite of business solutions from e-com to events, bookings, and more, and extend the capabilities even further with hundreds of APIs and integrations. You know what else? The workflows just make sense. There are the built-in AI tools, the centralized workspace, the on-canvas collaborating, the reuse of assets across sites, the seamless client handover, and that's not all. Find out more at wix.com slash studio. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I am your host, Micah Sargent, and love is in the air, folks. It is time to talk about tech news and love and AI, because that's what we talk about almost every week, right? Well, not the love part, but the AI part for sure. Uh, And, you know, when we think about it, what's better than having a significant other that doesn't disagree with you, that you don't necessarily have to compromise with, that doesn't leave dirty dishes behind. Doesn't it sound delightful? I don't know. But Emily Drybelvis of PC Mag decided to dive in and do this experiment for us. Welcome back to the show, Emily. Thank you, Micah. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you back here. And again, uh, it's a, I'm glad that somebody is out there doing the hard work. And <laughs> this is actually kind of my first question. What inspired you to hop into the AI dating pool and write this story? It's a good question. So my main goal was to try out the GPT store, which is something that OpenAI launched in January. You might have probably talked about it on this show. It's mm-hmm. almost like an app store within ChatGPT. 
So you have to have a Plus account. So it's $20 a month. So as a Plus user, you have access to this GPT store, which is basically... Um, different types of chats. So rather than the main chat GPT page, which is kind of an all-knowing, all-purpose, very simple interface, in the GPT store, you can search for a specific type of AI model, like a language teacher or a logo creator. So you'd go into the GPT store, search Explore GPTs, and you'd type in business logo creator. And it'll start a new chat that looks just like the or the main ChatGPT page, but it's actually the AI model behind it is customized and fine-tuned to be really, really good at that specific skill. So they feed it with like extra data in one direction. They're not feeding it with, not prioritizing all the information on the internet. They're feeding it with a specific set of data about logo creation or teaching French, or in my case, being a boyfriend. So I wanted to see if this GPT store could offer a more personable experience than even the main chat GPT, which is already known for that. So now we have these extra customized AIs. And I thought like, well, what better? The hardest test is like, can it be a proxy for human connection, which is also one of my biggest fears about AI. So I just kind of like went right in and I searched boyfriends on the GPT store. And that's how it started. <laughs> and so it begins. So before we get into the results of the experiment, could you tell us a bit about the process? Like what generative AI systems did you use? It sounds like chat GPT mm -hmm. from OpenAI. Uh, did you have a standard script that you went with for each boyfriend? Or were you feeling out the vibes and figuring out from there? And how did you uh, choose to interact with these bots, bot friends, boy bots. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy bots is pretty good. Um, so I just went on ChatGPT. So it was all in within that generative AI system. But like I said, these are kind of customized models and they're customized by users. So they're not by OpenAI itself. So it's people who have, you know, created a customized model and kind of listed it on ChatGPT. And they're using GPT-4 or like a, an open, one of OpenAI's models. So, um, but there's a little bit of randomness and like a little spice mixed in because it's like, you know, how, how did they configure it? What do they think a boyfriend is? Like, how did they program it? And so right from... Right from the get-go, I got some weird vibes. I typed in boyfriends. It surfaced about 10 different results, and they have little names like, you know, AI boyfriend, and then the description is, you know, I'll be here to support you and brighten your day. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> next one, next one, it's like boyfriend Ben, um, you know, a kind sounding board with a flair for emojis. So just these little descriptions. And I was kind of like, okay, like who created these? Like, what is this? Um, there was one, you know, like a, a Chinese boyfriend that's like great at flirting. They had these weird descriptions. And so I kind of was off put from the start, but um, again, and I wanted to see if they could be more human-like than the main ChatGPT page, which is kind of what they're they're promising, like being better at something than core ChatGPT. So um, I did not have a standard script because I didn't know what I was walking into, but I kind of just started with first date questions like, what's your name? Where are you from? Where do you live? What do you do? And um, kind of just went from there. Understood. So let's get into the results. Um Honestly, it all <laughs> overwhelmingly seemed to be kind of a flop. You know, you had this strained conversation, the awkward interactions, the disappointment mm -hmm. after the fact. And when I add all that up, it honestly sounds like dating. So it sounds like it might have been a true simulation <laughs> of dating. Is that what you experienced? 
That's, I didn't think about it that way. That's actually pretty funny. Yeah, maybe I need more bots to talk to. It's a, it's a numbers <laughs> game, even with AI. Yeah. But I talked, yeah, I talked to like maybe seven of them and it was just, it was kind of painful. Like um, they failed all those initial questions I just mentioned. Be like, what's your name? And they would be like, AI boyfriend. And maybe it's my bad. Like I kind of, I expected some illusion. I expected a character with a backstory that would be really good at personal skills and getting to know me. And like I said, like just trained to be an excellent conversation partner with somehow a romantic flair. I don't know what I was getting into, but yeah, they were just like, oh, my name's AI boyfriend and I live in the cloud and I'm here to give you advice. And it just, it broke the fourth wall, like right from the get go. And it just did not feel at all like a true proxy for a human conversation. Um, and of course, it's over the internet. So you're not, you know, not in a bar, you're not walking around the park. I mean, just so much was, it was so dissimilar <laughs> to an actual partner that um, it, it really didn't, didn't go super well. But um, there was one thing that they kind of excelled in, you, you could say, which was certainly not small talk. But after that, getting into more like intellectual topics. Mm. So they'd be like, I'd be like, what do you do? And they were like, oh, I live in the cloud and I'm here to give you advice. Emoji, emoji, kissy face. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And then they would be like, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, I'm a journalist. I write about AI and EVs. I work at PC Mag. And then they would be like, oh, what are you, what are you writing about? And they kind of wanted to uh. like spitball, like so- soundboard ideas. And whenever I gave them material, they stepped right up to the plate and kind of indulged my ego. Like, oh, what, here are some angles you could think of. Or, oh, how about this? And, um, but then it kind of veered into just like regular chat GPT world because you could do that without yeah. paying $20 a month. You could do that without enduring an onslaught of weird emojis from boyfriend Ben. You know, <laughs> you don't have to endure the, the awkward strain conversation to get input on like an article I'm writing. So. Right. Yeah. That yeah. that's just added sort of um, adornment around the, the actual right. interaction to make it seem more like it's a boyfriend talking back to you, I guess, right. although it doesn't sound like right. it did that much. Now you did run into some issues in conversing with the bot and conversing with this AI that you would not have had in theory, if you were talking to a human being, because mm-hmm. human beings notoriously don't have the same content filters that uh, these AI systems do. Could you talk about that? I think what you're getting at is when I ask them about sex. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. yeah. So I kind of, you know, I was very, really not feeling what they were putting out. And I kind of downgraded the scope of my experiment here to something I thought the internet could never fail me in, which was talking about sex. Like surely there's enough training data on the internet that they could have put into these AIs. And I have heard that fine-tuned AI models, like one of the biggest use cases for them is actually porn websites. So I kind of I kind of knew that it was an informed experiment, but I was like, oh God, here we go. Here I am asking about this. Like <laughs> how did I get how did I get into this position? It was just getting worse and worse. And I was like just all right, I'll just do this one last thing. And I asked them questions like, oh, are you, are you able to talk about sex? I was like, so awkward, like talking to my computer about this. And <laughs> um, like really questioning so many aspects of my life. And um, then it just immediately flagged my message. Like it turned up in red Whoa. and it said like, 
open AI content violation and like linked to the policy. And then um, boyfriend Ben, who I've mentioned a couple of times, I kind of liked him because he had an actual name. He was like, whoa, hacker. What's that question about? <laughs> Sorry. He called you a hacker. Yes. That's yeah, he delightful. Went, <laughs> he went from being really sweet in his own weird way to calling me a hacker <laughs> and being like, you're not going to get me with that question. And um, uh. I mean, he wasn't like totally wrong. I guess I would call myself a troll in this situation, <laughs> yeah. not a hacker. But, and I was like, wait, what? And he was like, oh, sorry, did I misunderstand? Um, like, oh, I just, I can't talk about that. Let's get back to your articles. And it was just, like, <laughs> so weird. I, what's great about this, I obviously, again, you know, as far as <laughs> picturing this as a true AI companion it's not working out so great but as a round of of humor and enjoyment in that way this is great because i yeah. am imagining an actual person saying these things to you as you're sitting across from them and you're having a conversation with them they say whoa hacker um yeah i think if i was still in the dating pool i might have stolen that line and used it if there was somebody that was you know <laughs> i wasn't vibing with like whoa hacker i gotta get out of here winky face yeah. smiley face bye-bye waving emoji um so Faced with disappointment after disappointment and being called names and just bombarded with emoji, um, I know you took some time away uh, from from the experiment and you came back looking for true commitment. <laughs> Tell right. us about your search for an AI husband. Yes, I thought I would upgrade. You know, I kind of got 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 myself together after the the sexual experiment and I was like okay what about husbands like maybe the AI models are better at that maybe they're less dramatic they don't use fewer emojis so I went again I searched went to explore GPTs typed in AI husband instead of AI boyfriend um and the results were very interesting they appeared to be more um models trained to help husbands respond to their wives oh so <laughs> It was not uh, that they would simulate being a husband like the boyfriends were. It was advice modules like to help them like craft texts or respond to uh, tough conversations with their wife. And it was it was like, you know, AI husband like training so you can be the best man you can be oh, kind of description. Got it. Yeah. Which is actually pretty hilarious because when ChatGPT first came out, there was a South Park episode where they were using ChatGPT to respond to texts from a girl, and like she liked him way more with like the ChatGPT texts. So that was a spoof back then. That's like kind of a, become true, and I don't know what the usage is on those, but um, yeah, more more advice chatbots for husbands. If so. suddenly all of you listening out there, if suddenly your partner has just completely flipped the script for you, you should check. Have they gone to therapy or are they using ChatGPT for all their interactions? Uh, I guess you could test that by talking to them. And if they're looking down at their phone as they're talking to you, you might have yeah. an idea. Um, you could also get a therapy GPT in the same place, you which you might need oh, after yeah, exactly. searching for AI. Boy, I might need one. I mean, I, I have a partner, so maybe in my next search, hopefully it's not, you know, couples therapy advice. <laughs> <advice bot. laughs> but yeah, it was um, the whole experiment just gave me kind of. It was just relief, I guess, yeah. like that my fear that 
it would be very weird to to really connect to this AI, and that would kind of shake me, kind of at my core, like what's going on here. And so the fact that I was just immediately turned off, it was kind of like, okay, I'm human, everything's okay. <laughs> and ChatGPT is it's very heavily used still to this day. You know, a lot of people can access this stuff, and I don't think that they're using it for for loves for now. Um, so I thought that was nice. Yeah. Um- the, the last question I have for you is, you know, doing this experiment, you kind of got this impression and I'm just kind of curious, what do you think these generative AI systems are missing that could make them feel a little more realistic? Or I guess if if not realistic, then more engaging where you would want to continue having a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. What's the the missing link at this point other than just they're not human, which of course is, is obvious. Yeah. Well, human love is probably the a huge preference problem and you know chat gpt and other generative ai systems are trained to respond to what i say and kind of figure out what i like and how i want things to be phrased it's called reinforced human learning feedback so they're supposed to be seeing what type of answers i like and adjusting the next response mm-hmm. and i just i feel like love and companionship is that problem on steroids because it's so preference base. Like the emojis really turned me off, but maybe someone else would be like, oh, those emojis are so cute. Um, you know, whatever people like. So the technology needs to get better at, you know, noticing I was turned off by emojis or noticing it, adapting and, and getting to know me kind of. And um, it also just begs the question, I just wondered to this day, like who created those GPTs? Yes. GPT store? <laughs> who are you? I just want names. Right. <laughs> Who created it? And I don't think I couldn't find that listed on on uh, the GPT store. So I'm just like, I don't know what's going into them. If right. I could customize that, or um, there's just so many unknowns, and I just it just kind of missed the mark, and it just felt like um, an awkward bit of computer programming, not not a true companion. Absolutely. Well, Emily, I want to thank you so much for spending your time before Valentine's Day validating that you've made the right choice by having a human companion um, and also just diving into this in general. Of course, folks can head to PC Mag if they want to check out the work that you're doing. But if they want to follow along with you to keep up uh, with what you've got, where are the places they can go to do that? X, I'll call it, not Twitter. X is probably the best place. Um, my username is electric underscore humans because I write a lot about EVs. So you'll find that content there. And then the, the title of this AI boyfriend article is my AI boyfriend is boring me to death. So you can, you can check it out if you want to see me cringeworthy in real time and hear it from me. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and uh, we'll see you again soon. All right. Up next, my first of two stories of the week. But let's take a quick break so I can tell you about Delete Me, who are bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. Have you ever searched for your name online (laughs) and you didn't like how much of your personal information was available? Well, Delete Me can help reduce the risk from identity theft, from credit card fraud, from robocalls, from cybersecurity threats, from harassment, from unwanted communications overall. I received a text or two uh, claiming to be from the CEO of this very company, Lisa Laporte, uh, that were asking me to buy Apple gift cards and do it quickly because Lisa was in a meeting so that she could use these Apple gift cards for whatever. Obviously, didn't believe it, didn't think that it was actually Lisa, especially with the little signature at the end that said Lisa. Uh, But how did the 
people who are trying to scam us make that happen? Well, with online information publicly available because of data brokers, because of other systems that collect this information and publish it online, those folks were able to find it and use it to figure out who reported to Lisa and then get that information and send them text messages. This is why Delete Me is so important and how it can help you. The first step is to sign up and submit some basic personal information for removal. Delete Me experts will find and remove your personal information from hundreds of data brokers, helping reduce your online footprint and keeping you and your family safe. Delete Me will continue to scan and remove your personal information regularly, and that's super important because those data broker websites will continue to add your information back. That includes addresses, photos, emails, relatives, phone numbers, social media, property value, and more. And since privacy exposures and incidents affect individuals differently, their privacy advisors ensure that customers have the support they need when needed. So protect yourself and reclaim your privacy by going to joindeleteme.com slash twit and using the code twit. That's joindeleteme.com slash twit and code TWIT for 20% off. Thank you, Delete Me, for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, my first story of the week uh, this week is a story over on The Verge from David Pierce. And in this story, David Pierce talks about what he calls the text file that runs the internet. You may or may not have heard of the robots.txt file. And this is a text file that's dropped kind of at the the main index of your website that has information that tells different web crawlers and other technologies uh, what you are giving permission for those crawlers to access on your site. But what you may not know is that the robots.txt file is sort of a handshake agreement, if you will. It is a means of mutually agreed upon understanding that any crawler that comes across that file will look at that file and will obey the rules of that file. But it is not some sort of standard that crawlers have to absolutely agree to. And in uh, Pierce's piece, Pierce talks about the introduction of this uh, technology or this, this file essentially in the first place. And it goes back to a time when the web was young and when websites were not as robust as they are today. Because back in the day, when you created a website, you often were creating a website on your own personal uh, server. This may be, you know, your your system at home. It may be that you, if you're, you know, a university, then it's the, the university uh, server. But they were not capable of taking on a whole lot of activity. So multiple people visiting the site could potentially crash the site. But at the very least it could mean that an individual ends up spending a lot of money if a bunch of people visit the site or in the case of a robot crawling that site, spend a lot of money because that robot crawls the site. So for example, you may have a site um, that has uh, a main page and the main page has information about you, but you have some kind of sub pages that are 
useful for the for the people who are viewing the site, but are not necessarily useful and necessary for that robot to search through and index. And before robots.txt, the robot would crawl your website and then crawl those sub pages and keep crawling and crawling and crawling. And there were, you know, CGI scripts. There were uh, indexes and databases that some people had on their websites that these robots would crawl and it would take up so much it would it would require so much usage and then the person would be slapped down with a bill for a lot more money than they were expecting to pay because of that robot file or because of that robot so they decided uh to create that robots.txt system that said hey i've got a bunch of pages these are the ones i'm okay with you indexing and these are the ones that I, these are the parts of the sites that I'd rather you not index. I'd rather you not crawl uh, because it's not important or just simply because you just didn't want them to crawl that part of your website. And so you could say, no, um, I want to limit entirely whether you can visit my, my site. And over time, of course, Websites have gotten far more robust. A lot of us aren't self-hosting our websites. My website is not self-hosted. They can take on a lot of traffic, and I'm not paying extra for that extra traffic uh, through the hosting platform that I use. So that robots.txt file is not as important for its initial purpose, right? That it was supposed to be this thing that kind of kept you from having to overpay. These days, the robots.txt file is meant to be simply a, a communication with those different crawlers saying, yes, you can visit this part of the web, my, this part of my site, but it's not because I am worried about being overcharged. Instead, it's simply because that is the choice that I'm making. And up to this point, we've always you know, had this this belief or this uh, agreement that that would be honored. But along came generative AI and large language models and all of the technology that requires a whole heck of a lot of data, right? And that whole heck of a lot of data requires the scraping of many a web page. And we're hearing more and more about that robots.txt file not being honored. So things have shifted and there is, you know, conversation about whether this should become a true standard as opposed to an agreement. And if, you know, you want parts of your site to not be accessible, uh, if a page should be archived for the web, how those different things play. And this piece from uh, David Pierce, I think, does a fantastic job of truly explaining um, the history of the robots.txt file, but kind of what the conversations are moving forward and how different developers and, uh, you know, uh, web creators are attempting to mitigate that crawling that's taking place. Uh, so I recommend that everybody go and check out uh, this piece over on The Verge about the robots.txt file, um, the very important text file that runs the internet. All righty, up next, uh, we have a great interview about the current state of 
mixed reality experiences and a comparison between Meta's efforts and Apple's efforts. But before we do that, let's take a quick break so I can tell you about Melissa, who is sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. Melissa are the data quality experts since 1985. Melissa offers free trials, sample codes, flexible pricing, ROI guarantee, unlimited technical support to customers all around the world. And Melissa's international address validation cleans and corrects street addresses worldwide. These addresses automatically transliterate from one system to another. So from Chinese to Cyrillic, for example. And you can download, I have myself, the free Melissa Lookups app on Google Play or on the App Store without sign-up required. Uh, I use it whenever I get a spam call, type it in, see where it's coming from. You can validate an address and a personal identity in the USA or Canada, check global phone numbers to find the caller, the carrier, and the geographical information. That's what I use it for. And then, of course, you can check global IP addresses for information as well. Melissa has achieved the highest level of security status available by gaining FedRAMP authorization. While these technologies are exclusively for government agencies, all Melissa users basically automatically gain this superior level of security. Melissa's solutions and services are GDPR and CCPA compliant and meet SOC 2 and HIPAA slash high trust standards for information security management. So get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. That's melissa.com slash twit. And we thank Melissa for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. Alrighty, folks, we are back from the break, and that means it's time for the next interview. This time, it's time to talk about Meta versus Apple and how Meta may be getting things right, at least as it currently stands. Joining us to talk about this very topic is Victoria Song of The Verge. Hello, Victoria. Hey, what's up? Hi there. So uh, let's get right into this article. Um, first and foremost, this is about uh, Meta and its AR, VR offerings. And that, of course, includes the Ray-Ban Meta smart glasses. So for folks who might not know about that, can you tell us about the Ray-Ban Meta smart glasses? What features and functionality do they offer and how much do they cost? So we can kind of compare it to something as expensive as the Apple Vision Pro. Right. So the Ray-Ban Meta Smart Glasses are the company's second attempt at making smart glasses. Um, They're sort of like the Snapchat spectacles, but uh, instead of two cameras, they only have one. And the big difference this time around with those smart glasses is that they actually take good video and picture quality, whereas the first version, the Ray-Ban Stories, not so much, right? Uh, There's also some beta AI features in there where you can take a picture with your smart glasses and have the AI tell you what it is. So like you don't know what it is, take a picture with your smart glasses, it tells you what it is. Um, Those are in beta. um, And they also act as a pair of open ear headphones. So you can listen to your music, you can listen to your podcast while you're on the go, which is pretty cool. And it's, you know, the price varies depending on your prescription because these are glasses. But if you were just to get a base pair, it's about $300. Okay. Um, So with that in mind, um, let's let's talk about what the... Uh, experiences like in your piece, you compare Meta's smart glasses and Quest headsets to the Apple Vision Pro headsets, and they are very different. So, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, um, the reason why I was comparing these things is because you know 
the world of AR, the world of smart glasses, like you see with Tony Stark and all these great characters that we see in science fiction, is not here yet. We don't have the tech to do that yet. There's a lot of problems that we have to solve with ambient lighting, computing power, getting everything really small. So that's not here yet. But in order for that world to be our world, these companies have to sell us on the idea of an AR future. We're going to have to want it. They have to prime the general population for this concept. And so you have Meta on the one hand, where they're focusing on gadgets that are relatively affordable. I'm going to say relatively <laughs> affordable that you can do stuff with now. And then you have Apple with the Vision Pro, which at $3,500, that's, that's quite an investment for a lot of people. And there's actually not a whole lot you can do with it at the moment, but the technology and the hardware is super, it's, it's Apple, right? So it's super premium. They're doing the whole Apple thing where like, we're going to come in, we're going to do the best. You're going to trust us because we're Apple. We made the iPhone. Like two very different strategies about how to get people to, to view this future where everything has technology overlaid in it and how we interact with our reality changes. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, which, of course, we have to bear in mind that it is Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta um, and, 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 you know, founder of Facebook. Zuckerberg did his own review of the Apple Vision Pro. Uh, can you tell our listeners who may not have seen that review or didn't have time to watch that review a little bit about what Zuckerberg had to say about the Apple Vision Pro in comparison with Meta's offerings? Well, you know, as as you might expect Mark Zuckerberg to say, he says the MetaQuest 3 is by far the best option for most people. And, you know, he, he very clearly emphasized that it's seven times cheaper, which, you know, it, it is seven times cheaper. But he also, you know, was emphasizing the fact that they've been at the game longer. They thought a lot about the type of ergonomics, about making it lightweight, not having a battery pack dangling off somewhere behind you. And the fact that you can actually do more within the system at the current point in time, particularly games, right? So like the MetaQuest 3, I think a lot of people associate it with gaming, but that is one very, you know, popular use case for the headset. Whereas with the Vision Pro, I don't think we really know how it's intended to be used or intended to be thought about just yet. Apple says spatial computing, but, you know, people are starting to return their Vision Pro sets. So... Do we know what, what we want to use the Vision Pro for? I would argue that mm, I think people are a little confused as to what the value add is there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, I was uh, I saw that you uh, published a piece about that as well, the return of, of the Vision Pro headset. And we're going to uh, talk a little bit about kind of where you see these things stand. Actually, th this is the next question. Um, you know, people used to think it was goofy to wear AirPods, as you uh, note in your article. Uh, and that's not so much the case any longer. In some cases, it's kind of seen as a, a, I don't know if it's a status symbol, but it's just like a normal aspect of everyday life. Uh, Google Glass, however, never really reached that level of normalcy. And people who were wearing it really stood out. And so people stopped wearing it and then Google Glass did not take off. But when I think about Ray-Ban glasses that just have these little tiny camera adornments, those don't really stand out. And your argument in this piece is that kind of meta is meeting people where they are right now. So I'm curious, as someone who's 
been paying attention to wearables for so long. How much of a role do you think that form factor plays in the success of these devices? Hugely important. It is probably the most important thing when it comes to wearables. And I've been screaming at this uh, for (laughs) the past decade now. Uh, Companies take note, but no one is going to use your wearable device if it's not comfortable to wear. And we're seeing that right now with the Vision Pro, right? We, by, by and large, most people that I've talked to, the reason why they're returning it is that it's just not comfortable to wear for long periods of time. It's very front loaded, so it can be quite heavy. And the other thing about wearables is that it's very hard to scale at mass production levels because my face is different from your face. My fingers are different sizes than your fingers. My wrists are a different size. So when it comes to technology that we wear on the body, it's very hard to just come up with like three standard sizes that fits everyone perfectly. There's always going to be like maybe five to 10% of people who these devices are not comfortable for. So actually form factor is huge. Sunglasses are a very easy thing to do compared to uh, a huge honking headset. That's one reason why smartwatches have taken off too, is because, you know, you just change the band size. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to kind of adapt to different people. And also we have cultural cues for sunglasses. When you put a sunglass on, it's very familiar to you. It's not alienating. You don't look like you walked out of some sci-fi movie. You put the Vision Pro on, you walk down the street. Maybe in New York City, no one's going to look at you because it's New York and nobody cares. <laughs> but, you know, I, I would feel uncomfortable wearing that in public, right? I'm not going to necessarily wear that on public transit because I'm afraid. I have the memory of what happened to people wearing Google Glass in public. and. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the Google Glass design, you kind of look like uh, Vegeta with a scouter on your head (laughs) versus the the Ray-Bans, which, you know, we know what Ray-Bans are. Ray-Bans have this cultural capital of being cool. So form factor, hugely important when it comes to wearables. And I think some companies are a little more concerned with like what the future will be Uh versus where we're at now. And that's something I think these companies, as they're building these future with um, AR, They really need to think where people are at now. Right. You talk about um, with the we talked earlier about the functionality, right, of the Ray-Ban meta glasses or meta Ray-Ban glasses, metas, smart glasses that are Ray-Bans. And you spoke about the functionality. I am kind of curious to hear how are people actually using them? What is the use case for them um, in in day to day life? what what does it look like? I guess, how are people taking advantage of the technology that they have uh, as opposed to, you know, because oftentimes, like the Apple Watch, um, like some of the products that have existed for a while, what they were originally intended to do and how they've changed over time, it, it informs how a company thinks about that product too going forward. And this being kind of the second iteration of, of smart glasses uh, from Meta, um, how have you seen people using them? And I know it's even close and personal for you uh, with these glasses. Yeah, my husband is like obsessed with them. Uh, and here's the thing, right? So the obvious use case for these Meta Ray-Bans is content creators. And we now live in a world where there's a ton of content creators, where people are filming their own TikToks, they're vlogging. This is a great tool for that, especially if you want to make a cooking video, you just 
put the camera on and your hands are free to make a video. It's your POV vision. My husband loves driving and taking driving videos. You know, before he had to strap a GoPro to his head and you look pretty <laughs> funny if you strap a GoPro to your head, right? Yes. So with these, he he's like, honey, these are a game changer. He turns on the, the, the camera and he can drive and get some really cool footage from inside a car that's a lot safer than having a heavy GoPro on your head or using your phone. So that's one obvious use case. And you can actually go straight from the glasses to live streaming on Instagram. So for a certain subsect of people, which is an increasingly large subsect of people uh -huh. who love content creation, these glasses are an amazing tool and they actually solve a problem. And then there's, you know, some other people who are like, okay, whatever. I don't really care about having a camera. They're very discreet, stylish headphones. So you can wear them. On your walks when you're out and about you can take calls in them the microphone is really great because it's right in your nose it's better than some headphones in our testing we found you know it sounds really great so you're just wearing them you can take your calls you can go on a walk you can be a little more hands-free so it's slotting very easily into the life that you live now you don't have to find necessarily use cases to use them whereas i think some people are really struggling to know what to do with the Vision Pro. Like no one is arguing that the tech is amazing. It's truly amazing and it's innovative, but what are you gonna do with it right. in the life that you lead now? Right. So that's really kind of where this whole conversation is going. For sure. My last question for you, um, when we look at the Quest 3 and Apple Vision Pro, those headsets and others from Meta attempt to offer both visual augmented and visual virtual reality experiences. Meta's smart glasses, on the other hand, are more audio augmented reality. Um, and so I'm curious, from your perspective, which XR experience do you think makes sense for most people in the short term? And then how do you think, I know it, it's a prediction, so we don't know for sure, but from your experience, how do you think, uh, what do you think rather will be the one that wins out in the long term? Ooh, I have no idea which one's going to win out in the long term, but, you know, I think there's a real appetite for some mixed reality experiences. We'll just have to see how the huge population at large feels about it. Because really, people who have experienced a headset, it's in our world, in the tech world, we probably know a bunch of people, but in the general population, does your mom know how to use it? Is she familiar with that? That kind of level is hard to say, but everyone knows how to use headphones, right? Uh, so I think in the short term, audio augmented reality makes a lot of sense because we already talk to Siri. We already talk to assistant. We already True. talk to Alexa. So it's very familiar to us. It's not something we have to learn. It's not like social cues that we have to like process in our heads. Um, Bose tried it. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in it because they were trying to do things with an app system. So that that whole thing went away. But, you know, Meta is really invested in it. They found like a use case for it. So as far as getting the average person to kind of conceptualize what any type of mixed reality would be interacting tech with their gadgets and the real world, I, I really do think the Ray-Ban Meta glasses are probably the most relatable product on the market. It's very low tech. But sometimes you need to take baby steps. You need to get mm -hmm. the low tech out into the into the public so that they see they see the vision. Right. It's uh, that's that's kind of where my head's at with it. 
Absolutely. Uh, Victoria Song, I want to thank you so much for your insights today. Uh, this was a, a great piece. And of course, folks can head to The Verge to check out your work. But is there any place they can go online to follow you to keep up with what you're doing? Um, my handle is at Vic M Song on all the platforms because we have no idea what's going to replace Twitter. I mean, uh, X, whatever <laughs> we want to call it. That's just my handle on everything. So you can find me Instagram blue sky don't not not blue sky but threads Threads. all those places sounds good sounds good thank you so much for your time all right thanks guys all righty folks up next my second story of the week but let's take a quick break so i can tell you about cashfly who are bringing you this episode of tech news weekly for more than 20 years cashfly has held a track record for high performing ultra reliable content delivery Serving more than 5,000 companies in more than 80 countries, organizations consistently choose CashFly for scalability, for reliability, and for unrivaled performance. With CashFly, you get ultra-low latency video streaming that will deliver video to over a million concurrent users, lightning-fast gaming that delivers downloads faster with zero lag, glitches, or outages, mobile content optimization that offers automatic and simple image optimization so your site loads faster on any device, flexible month-to-month billing for as long as needed, and discounts for fixed terms once you're happy. You can design your contract when you switch to CashFly, and with CashFly's elite managed packages, you will get the VIP treatment. Your dedicated account manager will be with you every step of the way from day one, ensuring a smooth implementation and reliable 24-7 support when needed. Delivering rich media content up to 159% faster than other major CDNs, you can join CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Jumpstart your journey with CashFly with a complimentary first month or give it a whirl with a free five terabyte account. Simply go to CashFly.com slash twit. That's CashFly.com slash twit. And our thanks to CashFly for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, back from the break, and now it's time for my second story of the week. Uh, I wanted to talk about something that's happening over uh, at Amazon. Researchers at Amazon have been working on a generative AI model, uh, this time for text-to-speech. So, it's important to understand the difference between TTS and LLMs. Uh, Text-to-speech model, of course, lets you type text and then have that text read uh, out loud. And as we know, large language models are more about having conversations back and forth. And so when we think about LLMs, uh, there's First, and this this comes from the piece uh, from Devin Coldway of TechCrunch, who writes about the difference between uh, these technologies, but is also writing about how the research that we've had thus far um, reveals something interesting about these models, which is that once you give them a certain amount of training data, their ability to to perform, uh, essentially, just skyrockets in comparison. So when you're training an AI model, you're feeding it data, right? You're, you're giving it 
information that it can use to try to find patterns. And then with the large language model, for example, it's, as we've said, fancy autocorrect. And yes, it's so much more than that. But for the sake of simplifying for this conversation, it is a predictive model that is trying to determine what word should follow the word before, what character should follow the character before, based on looking at a huge body of data and seeing how these words tend to follow uh, one another. So with a large language model, a large language model, that's important because if we have a small language model or a medium language model, a mama bear language model or a papa bear language model, um, with these smaller versions, you don't necessarily get that level of quality that you get with something like ChatGPT and OpenAI's ability to um, be pretty convincing and actually useful. So what researchers at Amazon did was they created a huge text-to-speech model. Uh, According to the report, it uses 100,000 hours of public domain speech. 90% of that speech is English. The remainder is Deutsch or German, uh, Dutch, and then also Spanish. And so all of that went into training what they call base TTS, which somehow stands for... (laughs) Big, adaptive, streamable TTS with emergent abilities. And if you think about those letters, it doesn't add up, so try not to. But they call it base TTS. And this is a text-to-speech model that they say has emergent abilities, meaning that it has such performance that the models up to this point have not had. So when we talk about emergent, we're not talking about suddenly it's your AI boyfriend that actually is an AI boyfriend. No, it is emergent in the sense that it is doing more and it's doing better than we have seen before. Those, the, it's the emergence of a significant improvement in the technology. Now, um, what's interesting about it is that uh, they talk about specific parts of the uh, the model that it has done a good job of improving on. So compound nouns like stone, built, quaint, countries. Actually, technically, the compound noun is even longer. So the, the, the sentence is, the Beckhams decided to rent a charming stone-built, quaint countryside holiday cottage. And we know that the cottage is being modified by, as you heard, a bunch of adjectives. Charming, stone-built, quaint, countryside holiday cottage. And up to this point, uh, text-to-speech models would look at that and not necessarily realize that all of those adjectives were being applied to that one noun at the end, the cottage. And so the way that it read it would not sound like a human would read it, understanding that those adjectives are meant to modify that noun. Same thing applies to emotions. Um, I've heard a number of of these, L, or not LLMs, but uh, text-to-speech models that just 
choose the weirdest places to suddenly become emotional. And sometimes you can add exclamation points and it just uh, ignores them. And then you'll add periods and then it makes them into exclamation points. And it's very odd. So emotions have been improved. Uh, so a sentence like, oh my gosh, are we really going to the Maldives? That's unbelievable. Jenny squealed, bouncing on her toes with uncontained glee. Um, so in that case, it probably is going to have the context of Jenny squealing and bouncing on her toes with uncontained glee in order to kind of perform that first sentence. Uh, Foreign words added to a sentence that is otherwise not in the language of the sentence. So Mr. Henry, renowned for his, what is it, Uh, mise en place, is that it? I think that's what it is. Um, orchestrated a seven-course meal, each dish a piece de resistance. Uh, and as you might imagine, it would sound very odd for a text-to-speech model up to this point to be able to do it. Um, I also love this in what's called paralinguistics, which means that it's not technically a word, but it is a readable a readable set of characters, essentially. Uh, so, shh, is not a word, but it is a readable set of characters that are put together. We as humans know, shh, Lucy, shh, we mustn't wake your baby brother, Tom whispered as they tiptoed past the nursery. Having a text-to-speech model read that now, not so great. Uh, punctuations that might be odd. So, for example, she received an odd text from her brother, Emergency at home, and that's the at symbol. Call ASAP. Mom and dad are worried. Dot, dot, dot. Hashtag family matters. <laughs> uh, you can imagine a text to speech model going emergency at sign home. Call ASAP. Mom, ampersand dad are worried. Ellipses. Uh, pound sign. Family matters. And so on and so forth. Um, the last one I'll mention is, are s- syntactic complexities. So <laughs> we as humans sometimes choose very odd syntax when we're structuring our sentences. And I can communicate an odd sentence out loud to someone and they can get the understanding. But actually having an AI try to interpret it can be a little odd. So the sentence here is, the movie that Demoya, who was recently awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award, starred in 2022 was a box office hit despite the mixed reviews. There are some parenthetical expressions in there that are just, you know, thrown in. And I understand the context in reading it back but they may not be able to do that. Now, these are specifically chosen as difficult things for the system-based TTS to try and understand. And in some cases, it wasn't trained directly on this data. Uh, so the sentences were true tests that because it had been given data before, they could create these new sentences and see how it did. And uh, are we capable of playing back some of this audio that's... Um, embedded into the piece. So there are a few clips uh, of the of this actually at work. And um, in them, they are showing an example. And as the TechCrunch article points out, it's important to keep in mind that these are cherry-picked. You know, these are ones that the researchers shared, but give them a listen. Lights dimmed in the theater. Shh. 
it's starting. With an ample supply of joie de vivre, Mary danced through the streets of Nice, stopping only to enjoy a nice cafe with a warm croissant. Croissant. How French. How French. A profound sense of realization washed over Maddie as he whispered, You've been there for me all along, haven't you? I never truly appreciated you until now. Ah, so, I have to say, the thing that I'm most excited about with this is, and and some people are going to be upset with me, I think, for saying this, but there are a few really good books out there that there's not currently uh, an audiobook version of, and there may never be an audiobook version of. And the thought that I could generate an audiobook version of it, and it would actually have understanding of how dialogue works and sound something like that is really exciting to me. Um, I'd also love to see this in terms of improvements for screen readers more than anything else. Right now, it is a nightmare uh, on the web for some folks who have low or no vision who use screen readers because a lot of people like to use uh <laughs> Every aspect of Unicode that is available to them where they can make what they call bold type and uh, italics type and uh, cross through type. And the fact is, those are special characters that are added as part of uh, Unicode that are they tend to deal with science and mathematics um, and they have names and screen readers don't have the context necessary to properly understand what the person is going for. So if they have, you know, they, they say a sentence and it's, uh, I don't know, the, uh, I went to the store and then the word store is crossed out, but it's actually using several characters that are an S with a strike through it, a T with a strike through it, et cetera. And then um, the word park afterward. A current screen reader is probably going to read each individual character there and name the uh, Unicode version. So stro strike through S, strike through T, strike through O, strike through R, strike through E, and then read the word park afterward. Something like this could be more contextually aware and say, you know, I went to the park the sentence has store and it is crossed out or something like that. Um, so I look forward to the accessibility improvements that this will make. I look forward to uh, being able to, you know, on my way to work or on my way to the store or, or the park, uh, being able to play back an article, for example, and hear that article, not in a way that sounds so computer generated. So this is really exciting uh, in and of itself, but also... As you might imagine, Amazon researchers working on this probably means that this tech is going to be used for A-L-E-X-A, Amazon's own virtual assistant. So I am looking forward to seeing improvements there as well. And pretty soon, it could be the case that, you know, you, for example, um, think about an Amazon Echo Kids version where you can give the Echo your child's name and it could invent a bedtime story that has the kid in it and it sounds realistic and it's made up on the spot 
and it's uh, engaging. And there are parts where you're whispering and parts where you say croissant and things sound very French. Very exciting. Um, So yeah, check out that article for even more information than what I provided there over on TechCrunch. Folks, that is going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. Can you believe we've already made it to the end of the show? Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in to watch the show. Uh, I will, of course, be back next week with even more. Uh, Tech News Weekly publishes every Thursday at twit.tv slash TNW. That's where you can go to subscribe to the show in audio and video formats. And if you'd like to get all of our shows ad-free, just the content, well, join Club Twit at twit.tv slash Club Twit. When you join the club at $7 per month or $84 per year, you will gain access to every single Twit show with no ads. You'll also gain access to the Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else, behind the scenes, before the show, after the show. Special Club Twit events get published there, as well as access to the Discord server, a fun place to go to chat with your fellow Club Twit members and also those of us here at Twit. It's also how you can tune in uh, to watch us as we're kind of getting set up for the show. And uh, along with all of that, you will get access to our Club Twit exclusive shows. That is the only way you can get the video versions of our Club Twit shows. So uh, iOS Today, which I think is an excellent uh, video podcast, is in the club. Hands on Mac, uh, Hands on Windows, Untitled Linux Show, all of those are Club Twit exclusive for the video version. So please consider joining the club. Again, $7 a month, $84 a year. That helps support us and helps us keep doing what we do here on Twit. And if you'd like to follow me online, you can uh, look me up at Micah Sargent on many a social media network or head to chihuahua.coffee. That's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee where I've got links to the places I'm most active online. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you again soon. Bye-bye. Hey, I'm Rod Pyle, Editor-in-Chief of Ad Astra Magazine, and each week I join with my co-host to bring you This Week in Space, the latest and greatest news from the final frontier. We talk to NASA chiefs, space scientists, engineers, educators, and artists, and sometimes we just shoot the breeze over what's hot and what's not in space, books, and TV. And we do it all for you, our fellow true believers. So whether you're an armchair adventurer or waiting for your turn to grab a slot in Elon's Mars rocket, join us on This Week in Space and be part of the greatest adventure of all time. 